Well, thank That's God. what you're dealing with. Thank God Chinch isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm very sorry about my, um, my sound. Um, why aren't you wearing a face mask? And why have you not brought with you a bottle of hand sanitizer? Well, I've not brought a bottle of hand san- sanitizer because they're antibacterial, not antiviral. Um, so they don't do anything. Uh, and I'm not wearing a face mask just because I'm very vain. The I don't know. I think I you can get some nice ones. I did have this. I don't want to sort of diminish what is a global health scare and people are dying of. I did, have, I, I did get ill having been in Istanbul and Frankfurt and therefore in, in three or four separate airports. And I... I got home and then had a couple of days and I suddenly noticed I wasn't feeling very well. And you do think, oh my God, what if this is coronavirus? I'm confident I've got toddleritis whereby Ed got something from nursery, didn't really notice it and then decided to give it to me and it turns out, it sort of hits me with the full force. We had not, we both, Kate and I both had norovirus a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago and literally couldn't move from bed. We're just kind of feverish, nightmarish sort of hallucinations and... You know, it was all a very unpleasant experience. Ed had had it for three days and basically didn't notice. He was like sick twice, just brushed himself down, got on with it, running around everywhere. And you think, you've got norovirus, be wiped out. But they just, they don't know, they're mad little G- things. Give, given the seriousness of these global pandemics are very much framed in the media, mm. um, would you say, if you're going to do a top three, norovirus, coronavirus and toddleritis... Would you say that actually toddleritis is way more serious, but just because of its name gets treated a lot less seriously because it's incredibly contagious and people suffer from it three or four times a year. Yeah, toddleritis is just more regular and yeah. you never know when it's going to strike. You need, you need some rarity in the toddleritis. And you can prepare yourself for the global pandemics. You cannot prepare yourself for the child that your child interacts with who happens to have a particularly nasty strain of face masks the, the word all toddlers should wear face masks all of them. especially because as previously discussed i have caught this from ed because ed coughs in my face without covering his mouth exactly he hasn't learned to cough into his elbow the, which is he's two and a half bad he, parenting. he should be better it is bad parenting you know how we try not to date our content this will when there will be people who in like a year two years time when when set piece menu has fallen by the wayside because we've had a massive argument or one of us has succumbed. And, but they'll go back and it'll be really interesting to think how... Like, we don't know how it plays out from here. We might sound to people like we were massively panicking and, God, we aren't, weren't we all being a bit stupid? Or people might be listening to, listening to this in the sort of a post-apocalyptic wasteland thinking, my God, these people were not taking this seriously. <laughs> they we were don't not, know. They were very ill-prepared. Yeah. With that in mind, let's plough on to our most inevitable deaths. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who recently travelled 500 miles for three minutes of work, and Rory Smith, who recently spent three days travelling to provide 500 words of work. Um, the food today is to promote Rory's favoured Italian deli. Yes, I've missed it. To which he has returned. Um, no expense has been spared to bring you two slabs of salami. Um, one a fennel salami and the other oh. salami Milano. Lovely. So we're going to enjoy that with um, some cheeses and breads provided by Stephen. That is to come. We, we should name the deli because we don't have a sponsor, do we? So let's just give it to them for free. Casa Italia. Casa Italia, Manchester's best food. On Wilmslow Road in On Wilmslow Road. And also there's one in Wilmslow now. They are expanding. Oh, but there's got to be some kind of Wilmslow association. Yes, that is the that's <laughs> Wilmslow the road. Road or Wilmslow, full stop. Uh, now, Andy Hinchcliffe is not here, as you well know. He is in Portugal. So for the first time in a while, he actually has an excuse to not know what we're talking about today. But that still doesn't mean I'm not going to tell you. It is... MLS, no definite article, but now 26 teams. The ever-expanding US League is both improving its global brand awareness and yet still seemingly tied down by the odd 
cumbersome trope regarding quality, recruitment, and its place in the domestic sporting landscape. Will it ever be able to get the same sort of coverage as all the other main American sports? So it is time for Team SPM to do some narrative busting. Uh, that is to come. Uh, get in touch with the podcast, setpeatsmenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We start with some managers most likely to. Mm-hmm. And here they come. This is from John Wood, not the Buffalo. Buffalo. There is another John Wood, and he says this. Manager most likely to be Vinnie Jones' stunt double, Nigel Pearson. And with that, Nigel Pearson is retired from these suggestions because we've had too many of yes. them. So he's now with Sean Dyche. So Sean Dyche, Nigel Pearson and Graham Potter. I think that's fair enough. Have now all been retired. Uh, and these are from Cameron Hill in Dublin. Hello, Cameron. Manager most likely to have to pay at a corner shop with a heap of small coins and feel really bad about it? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Manager most likely to shamelessly pay at a corner shop with a heap of small coins... Frank Lampard. And finally, manager most likely to play World of Warcraft, but never admitted in public, Pep Guardiola. Uh, Ooh, so yeah, thank you very much yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to Cameron. Uh, yeah. Can I make a point about yes, managers most likely to? Yes, of course uh, you can. Manager most likely to looked slightly awkward during a sort of semi-riot after Fenerbahce Galatasaray. Chris Wilder. <laughs> so there we go. And that's not who even was, a joke. That's who actually was something that happened. At the Sucru Saratodalu Stadium. And I was outside watching the riot, getting a bit too close. And um, it wasn't really a riot. They were just protesting. Um, a big line of police, loads of fans, loads of, loads of Fenerbahce fans they lost. Um, and I was outside filming and getting told, okay, getting shouted at occasionally by Turkish fans who I think thought I was some sort of narc, which I'm not, famously. Uh, and I, I, looked, I looked sort of over my shoulder. I thought, recognise that person. Who is it? And I thought initially it, was, it must be a scout. And if you see a, as a journalist, see a scout at a football match, you think I should probably work out who he's trying to watch. And then that might at some point be useful information and I thought no 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 that's Chris Wilder but one of Sheffield United's board members is also on the board of Fenerbahce so he'd been invited out to the game uh, he had tried to leave the stadium with his his entourage and had realised immediately that leaving the stadium with sort of 300 Fenerbahce fans shouting really angrily at the board was not really possible so we sort of loitered for a bit I had a chat with him he was, he was a bit sort of distracted um, I introduced myself. He wasn't impressed. <laughs> didn't didn't doesn't read my newsletter. And uh, Chris Wilder's general default demeanour is unimpressed. So I'm not yeah. surprised that you he didn't, didn't quite have the credentials. Well, I, I opened up with I just I, I opened up with it's strange to meet another Yorkshireman here, and I thought that might sort of melt the ice a little bit. But no, Wilder remained completely impassive. Um, I did see him uh, get out of the the stadium eventually and I think I believe he has subsequently managed the game in the Premier League so he's obviously still alive and done press conferences we but have it, seen him on it was television. interesting to see him in a, in a situation in which he was I mean he's a tough man Chris Wilder and he, it's not like he was panicking or anything but he was very clearly like hang on I don't I, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't, this is not something that... I, I thought the atmosphere at Bramall Lane yeah. could get a bit tasty. Uh, here are a couple of contributors on likeable footballers for our Select Eleven, starting with Richard Parfit, who has a twist. Hi, folks. Some further thoughts on the likeable players debate. What about players who are so obviously unlikable that everyone loves them? Paolo Di Canio, he suggests, with this universally liked, despite being Sheffield's answer to General Franco, even though he's Spanish, not Italian. Diego Costa, who is Spanish, not Italian. And Mario Balotelli, who is Italian. That's from Richard. I think he's probably right there. That there's a point where you become such an obvious villain that people quite like. 
It's the anti-hero trope, isn't it, that people have in films now? I don't watch films. The, the cuddly villains, we accept them despite their, yeah. their obvious pitfalls. And the ones we really don't like are the ones who are villains but don't think they are. Yeah, pretend not to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this from Buffalo, Ray George. I have always liked Brighton's defenders, despite them being a bogey team for my hammers, he says, and realise it has everything to do with their names. Last year's pairing of Duffy and Dunk always sounded to me like a half-hour comedy detective show from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And this year, Dunk and Burn sound like the instructions for how to use Twitter. <laughs> uh, Ray has also emailed this uh, which will serve as a little PS to what we just heard greatly appreciate being bestowed buffalo status gave me the biggest of smiles as I descended the stairs for my morning subway commute yesterday I thought you would appreciate the conversation this generated with my wife last night as I shared the news with her me big news for me today received buffalo status from the set piece menu podcast wife I have no idea what that means or what it is <laughs> Me, it's an acknowledgement of my attempts at contributing to the podcast. Wife, but what does that have to do with a buffalo? Me, look, just listen to the segment of the pod where they mention it. Plays the relevant segment. Wife, speechless. Me, what? Wife, you're such a dork. Uh, My wife is nothing if not extremely perceptive. That from Ray. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Ray. Finally, this from David Dalton regarding Rory Soccer's story about Alexis Sanchez being unaware of how to use a cheese grater and the consideration that it was just uh, just as likely to be about his underprivileged upbringing as his perhaps his status as a molly coddled footballer, which is what you might default to in that situation. Folks love the pod, says David. On the subject of holding one thing while moving the other, (laughs) (laughs) I feel strongly about how people open champagne. Pain. Hold the cork and twist the bottle, he says. Most people get it wrong. I think it is at the opposite end of the spectrum from the greater. If you take wealth, maybe the bottom 5% in the world would use a greater incorrectly, and the top 5%, plus some waiters, open champagne correctly. The top 0.05% use a sabre. Uh, Setpiecemenu at gmail.com Actually, is where is you a, need to send an email to. Is there a cultural thing about greaters? Because I'm imagining that, say, in Asia where cheese does not feature largely in the cuisine, would they be less likely to know what a grater is if you presented them to but one, you, with one? you grate ginger. Do you use a grater for that? In, if you're you talking traditional a Thai cuisine, for example? kind of grater, Maybe. but you have to find a way to... The science is the same. That's true. The yeah. shape might be different. Though. That's true. Not the traditional triangle. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, th- this is where our knowledge on graters might end. I'm fascinated by graters. I Carry on. Google image search. Global graters. Uh, now, the new <laughs> Major League Soccer season started in the weekend just past. Normally something that, for us here, amongst the European liberal elite that passes without too much fanfare. It has, however, come a long way since the days of playing on NFL fields with the lines still drawn on and the penalty shootouts with a running start to avoid a draw. But given the obsession the mainstream, with inverted commas, has with David Beckham as the franchise he was promised as part of his move to LA Galaxy in 2007 came to eventual fruition in the form of Inter-Miami, and also the fact that the US Domestic League is celebrating its 25th year, we were treated over the course of the past few days to something approaching an elevated conversation about MLS. That was contributed to by the great Rory Smith in his NYT newsletter this week, something that Chris Wilder clearly does not read, and also by an excellent feature on the BBC World Services Sport Today programme. And the reason I use mainstream with inverted commas and say elevated with such weary sarcasm is because MLS appears to still be weighed down by some demeaning narratives, which both newsletter and broadcast attempted to put into a slightly more updated context. Now... We do not claim to be experts in this field, but that's never stopped us before. And we do have a rather impressive listenership in the US. So we thought that we'd have a little look at MLS this week with the help of our fine audience stateside. So on SPM today, is MLS succeeding? And have the methods of measuring that 
become outdated. We'll try and touch on expansion, recruitment, the demographic of the fan bases, the conflict between old and new franchises, and also the level of football. And you'll forgive us in advance if our own contributions are based on interest and enthusiasm rather than expertise. But, team, where shall we begin? Well, it's interesting you say all those interesting things about what we could, the areas we could touch on. Because basically all I was going to say was that I think there's a, a kind of lingering snobbery whereby Europeans in general, but British people in particular, are desperate, have this weird, this weird thing where we're desperate for Americans to like football as a sort of acknowledgement of our superiority and our, our kind of, our, our better taste in sport. But at the same time, we, we really don't want them to, we really don't want them to be good at it. So there's, the, I feel as though, the risk of sounding like Pretty Patel, I think... W- we have this tendency to talk down MLS. You're going to need to do an awful lot of work on your accent. <laughs> to sound like pretty pretty Patel. Patel. And also your general attitudes to society yeah. and culture and life. How, I mean, how do you hate that many people? The, um, and shout at them all the time as well. I just don't have the energy. The, um, yeah, well, she is. <laughs> yes, that's Steve's job. Steve is much more like Pretty Patel she than is, you will ever be, Rory. She is awful. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, I think there's this snobbery that w- we kind of take pleasure in talking down MLS. And I think often it's based on not really watching it. You can watch it in this country. It's, it's, it's still on Sky. The, the hours obviously don't necessarily lend themselves to devoted viewing because of the time difference. Um, a, a problem that you can associate with all US-based sports. Yes. Part, I think part of the reason that... Well, if you speak to Mark Chapman, Mark Chapman's very much... See, who's the um, ubiquitous... He's basically the default sports presenter for all sports in Britain. He's a bit like the Queen but grumpier, and on BBC Two. And um, Chappers is a, is a massive NFL advocate, and he thinks that having NFL accessible on terrestrial TV rather than on Sky, he thinks that's made a massive difference in terms of accessibility, and I think he's probably right. Given that he fronts the programme, I'd imagine he that's something to, that he's very yeah. invested in. He has to think that. It and is an excellent you know, programme. He is an, a, a tr- I love Chappers dearly. He's a tremendous advocate of himself. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> But I think that, that, Steve's right, that probably does count against all US sports in this country um, and in Europe in general. But I think also there is this tendency to, to, to want football to be one of those things that we do better than the Americans. In my experience of watching MLS, which is not, I'm not a devoted fan, I watch it when I can, which given that I've got a two-year-old and I have time to watch films is not all of the time. And it's actually kind of a, a theory that I have about all football. Basically, most football's not that good. And when, when we talk about the quality of leads, we tend to... That's a very fluid conversation in terms of what we're referring to. So you'll see Liverpool play Man City and people say, oh, this is a wonderful advert for what the Premier League is. And no one ever thinks to say, well, actually, probably the best gauge to what the Premier League is is like Burnley playing Crystal Palace, and that's probably quite crap. Um, and it's the same when you watch games in Italy. You'll, you'll see people see a nil-nil between like a struggling Roma and Fiorentina and say, oh, this is why Italian football is so boring. But you might also... You're not really comparing edge with edge there. You're comparing edge with something else. Uh, same in Spain, same in Germany. I watched two games when I was in Istanbul. And the first, the first one was Besiktas, Trabs on sport. And the first 20 minutes were really bad. And you sort of thought, well, actually, this, is, this was kind of a challenge to my theory that basically all football at a certain level looks roughly the same if you take an individual game as your, as your case study. Um, and I thought, well, this is difficult. Obviously, the, the level in Turkey is kind of lower than I was expecting. But the last 70 minutes, once Daniel Sturridge had been substituted, were fantastic. Daniel Sturridge is no longer at Trabzonspor no longer at because Sport. of his uh, ban. His worldwide ban. And that's a slightly harsh. Sturridge did not get involved in the game. It wasn't entirely his fault. But you watch the last 70 minutes of that, and that would be as good technically and in terms of entertainment as 
I don't know, an upper championship game, maybe lower, low, sort of 15th and 16th in the Premier League. There's no huge difference. There is at the elite level where you have kind of 10, 12, 15 clubs who are much better than everybody else. But the general standard of football across the world, once you're at professional level, is not... There are differences, but it's not hugely... They're not massive chasms. And I think MLS suffers because we've, de- we've decided that it's bad. And because there's no meaning in it, for, for people watching on this side of the Atlantic, we, we assume that our lack of emotional response to the game is related to the quality of the game rather than our own disinterest. And the other thing that's really important is that, in, t- in terms of quality, is that quality of football and how entertaining it is are not only unrelated, they are separate things. Thank you. This was the point that I wanted to make. Oh, go on then. Quality is not, not the same as competition. Yeah. Uh, the enjoyment that you get out of a series of football matches in a league or a cup competition are not defined by the level that they are comparative to the very best of all football. They are defined by how close they are, what the competition levels are, and if there is whether there's emotional enjoyment that you had because that's the kind of disconnect from this side of the Atlantic. But as soon as you have a horse in the race, and we've spoken many times about having a horse in the race is basically all you need to enjoy something, you are able to then define your levels of enjoyment, which have absolutely nothing to do with the quality per se of the football. It is about the ability, and MLS tries this in a completely different way to pretty much all other uh, soccer football leagues around the world. They try to achieve parity in the way that American sports try and achieve parity uh, elsewhere, and they are trying to marry that model to this desire to make it a product that has worldwide legitimacy. And that has been a struggle, but that does not necessarily mean that that is a redundant process for them to try and undertake. And I get very frustrated with this idea that, as you say, Rory, having this discussion about quality and this way that that MLS is is demeaned unnecessarily, maybe particularly uh, because of this outdated imperialist attitude that British people and sports fans often have about American sports and it's my frustration with the NFL as well because like Chappers huge advocate of NFL and what really (laughs) frustrates me is the idea is that because it's American and because there are uh, television timeouts that makes it for some reason something that no human can enjoy it's morally inferior yes and that that really annoys me and it gets my gut and I've become very defensive about it which I will attempt to not do now but you're right it is coloured by that attitude but it is perhaps now less coloured by that attitude because of what? And this is what I'd try, like to try and talk about over the course of the next few minutes, is to try and understand what MLS has done, given that they were up against this narrative, whether it was demeaning from elsewhere other than the UK uh, or even Europe, try to develop that sport within the framework of the parity system and how they've managed to succeed to do that so that it is not quite the case of what it used to be. Well, Perhaps MLS didn't help themselves in the very early years when they were talking about trying to catch up with the European leagues to be taken seriously in the same way. Because even going into their 25th season, it's still a fairly embryonic competition. You know, the the major European leagues have had 100 years plus of a head start in terms of establishing themselves, building the loyalty of a fan base and settling into the rhythm of what their league is all about, you know, where the tactical innovations have come from, how they've progressed, where players come from, where the hotbeds of, of talent and, and loyalty to the game are. The, the US is still finding its feet. And certainly in terms of the responses we've had from people who've got in touch is to say, look, in, in some areas, in some markets, soccer has really been accepted a great deal more than it has in others and, and the interest that has, has been generated and maybe their ability to bring players through locally to give 
support that level of attachment doesn't exist elsewhere and those that have relied on importing players either from other parts of North America or from Europe have struggled to get a foothold locally in the same way and this this desire just to go back to what you're talking about about quality and 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 how we assess that surely an awful lot of our ability to assess quality is finding a level standard of of competition Mm -hmm. the best games that we watch are ones that are even doesn't really matter whether you're watching Premier League or whether you go and see West Didsbury and Chorlton in the 10th tier if it's a good contest between two committed sides with and and you get that feeling that these players are having to raise their game to meet the standard in front of them then that for me represents quality and I think the the point at which football reaches reaches its zenith is probably when the the technical accomplishment of the two teams meet that level of equality so that the game could go either way. So you have not only a game that is being played expertly, but that is finely balanced. And I think that's what probably makes the Champions League so compelling in its latter stages that, that you know, Man City, Real Madrid could have gone another way. It doesn't take a huge, Guardiola said this, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination, even though City to, to an outsider looked like the, the superior team to think, well, actually, Fernandinho doesn't make one of those blocks and actually Real Madrid win 2-0, and that's what, or 2-1. And that then tees up a completely different game in the second leg. So it's when you've got two very, very good teams full of very, very good players and they are evenly matched. That's when football is at its best. Most football doesn't look like that. Most football is either an, an, an unevenly matched game because one of the teams is a lot better or is an evenly matched game where the quality level is not that high so it's not quite as technically accomplished. The one thing that I think the Champions League has, and European football in general has, that MLS will, ha- will take time to develop, and may not develop, it might be, be- because it's, it's growing in a different era that it can't. But one of the things that makes, the ch- makes European football so, so interesting when different teams from different countries meet are the kind of theoretical and conceptual legacies that they come from, the, cultures, the individual cultures of each of those countries, which means when you get... It, when you get Borussia Dortmund against AC Milan, those are quite bad examples. Anyway, <laughs> when you get like a German Gaiden pressing team against an ultra-defensive Italian team or against a, a really slick passing Spanish team, not only do you have a level of technical accomplishment, not only do you have a finely matched game in terms of the balance between the two teams, but you also have contrasting, conflicting identities. That's what lends that extra layer of, of intrigue and tension and significance to those games so you, you're not only seeing what well, uh, you know can they compete against the team that are of their their level you're also seeing a kind of a meeting between philosophies and that to be fair has been watered down in Europe in the last 10-15 years as everything and Dortmund haven't around. been gag and pressing for the last 120 years no they? no the, although that would be tiring <laughs> they, would be, one they, team they, they've not been gag and pressing for the last 120 years but everyone has been closing down since the start of football and those two things are the same <laughs> the but you, you get this kind of historical legacy as well that plays into it to see how these, philo- these philosophies compete with each other. MLS doesn't have that yet. I think one of the really important things that, that has to happen for MLS to maybe make that leap to where it's, it's considered not necessarily the same as England, Spain, Germany and Italy, but, but maybe France, certainly places like Portugal, uh, Turkey to an extent, Russia, that second tier of leads, is you need a couple of dominant forces who not only win things or are always a, a contender, but have a clear identity to pl- to, for other teams to play off against. So 
the last, I think, three of the last MLS fi- MLS Cup finals, three of the last four MLS Cup finals, have been contested between Toronto Se- and Seattle. Toronto, Toronto and Seattle. That is now becoming a kind of era-defining rivalry, almost. But also that 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 has happened almost against their regular season performance. So that is that is one of the things that you were talking about the latter stages of the Champions yeah. League. Is that that because of the MLS Cup playoffs, a team, for example, LAFC last season doing brilliantly, who were the best team in America, um, in, and and they were able to do it during the regular season, but they were beaten in the um, MLS Cup playoffs by teams who have better abilities in that and you see that in a playoff structure and you see that in a lot of American sports there are often uh, teams who do well in the regular season who are then uh, trumped by another team's ability New York Giants did it twice to win two by Super Bowls by what the Germans call a Turniermannschaft a tournament team and that's that's the extra layer of intrigue that that, um, that you get in MLS just the structure that you can win the Supporters' Shield as the best regular season team, as I think LAFC did last year. Yeah. Um, but you then need to have another kind of string to your bow and you have to compete with that pressure. But it, what I don't know about, and it'd be interesting to get the view of, of, of our American listeners on this, I don't know whether you could say that either Seattle or Toronto, who've made three of the last four finals, have an identity that that other teams either aspire to or reject. And I think that's really imp- that narrative is really important. Yeah, I was just going to add that I'm a little bit surprised and, and at the risk of sounding like a Europhile and in terms of the way that we structure our football is the way to do it. Retrospectively, I wonder whether MLS would consider that it was a mistake not to, whilst they were at least establishing themselves, not to follow that pattern of the way that, that the league system runs. And the, that, the post-season thing being all-encompassing is going to mean that you struggle to really be able to draw the sorts of conclusions because you're not giving those teams an opportunity to build a dynasty, a legacy for, for LAFC to establish themselves over the course of three or four years as being the, the top yeah. dog in MLS because when it comes down to a knockout competition, it is a bit more of a lottery and, and the, the, you know, well done to Toronto and Seattle for, for being able to maintain that level in the postseason. But we, we can't really compare leagues if they're not structured in the same way. I but, think that initially... This is something we'll maybe talk about later. Initially, I think they had to structure it in an American way for an American audience to identify with it. What's happened in the background of MLS is that, and I think this is really important, that we always think of it as being, can soccer compete with American football, with baseball, with basketball, with, with ice hockey, you know, in that kind of firmament of American sports. But increasingly, I think that's a kind of, that's a moot debate, which is soccer is established in, in yeah. the States. There is, it it, it's it not, is the third most popular sport, but that includes MLS and global yeah. soccer so and the, how so it the, infiltrates American society so this is the and thing. culture. What MLS now has to compete with is a football-savvy or a soccer-savvy audience who are also watching, who might watch their MLS game, their local MLS game or the big MLS game of the weekend at, at a normal time, but will probably have watched two Premier League games before, before that in the morning who might, have, who might be tempted not to watch Seattle against Toronto but might want to watch Gladbach against Dortmund in, in Germany. Who, who might be as familiar with goings on at Barcelona Real Madrid as they are at LAFC or, or New York City FC. The MLS has to... And it's interesting that a lot of the criticism that, of, of MLS that comes to me through the NYT, through, from readers, isn't Europeans saying, oh, America's rubbish for football. It's Americans saying MLS is a really low standard compared to Europe. And I would say that that's a slightly false comparison. I think you're comparing everyday games that you see in MLS with your showpiece European game. So yeah, there probably isn't an MLS game of the same quality or drama as Liverpool against Manchester City. But then 
there's probably quite a lot of MLS games that are of similar comparable quality and certainly comparable, comparable drama to Burnley against Crystal Palace. There is a conflict, is there not, between our desire to have um, teams to create a dynasty or dynasty um, and therefore be a global... Definitely, definitely dynasty. <laughs> definitely dynasty. I thought we were trying to be uh, USophiles... Uh, rather than well, there's something, there's something they just do wrong. <laughs> yeah, you mean you can help and educate at the same <laughs> yeah, time. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there is conflict between getting inside like a kind of like a brand leader, if you like, a global representative, yeah. so that we can understand that, and also the, the the conflict of that with the 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 American sports ideal of having parity and not having those teams, and yet when the dynasties happen, they often celebrate them. The other conflict you get is with the fact that you are asking for a hundred years worth of culture and history, when of course you cannot create that because MLS in its current form only started in the mid-90s following the, the deal they made with FIFA at the 1994 World Cup. One of the provisions of them hosting is that they had to set a, a new league because the NASL had crumbled prior to that. So how do you do that? Well, you probably find a way in expansion and tapping into new uh, demographics, new cultures, new parts of the country that haven't been represented. And you also try and do that by making the experience that the fan has, if you're competing on uh, levels that we we were speaking about with, you know, you're going to be watching a big Premier League game at seven o'clock in the morning and then you're going to go and watch your MLS game. Well, what does that MLS game give you that that Premier League game doesn't? You get to experience your own atmosphere and American sports franchises are all brilliant at doing that. For example, David Smith saying to us, and thank you for all your contributions on Twitter. I saw a game in Chicago a few years back and whilst the quality of football wasn't great, the match day experience was no hostility, people relaxed, just a nice place to be, like a baseball atmosphere. A point to discuss might be less away fans uh, due to the large distances. Come on, David. Fewer away fans due to the large distances. Uh, and also, Hal Getz, you'll remember, is an American person. He's uh, contributed before. He says this, uh, keeping to Hal's style, you'll note. Dear Set Piece Menu, love to hear that such an excellent pod is talking about MLS. As a fan, my favourite strength about the league is the diversity in fan cultures in the United States. The league's supporters groups and other fans pull styles from Central America, South America, the UK, Italy and plenty of other countries too. And as new teams and new communities get added to the league, the balance continually changes. In a country known as a melting pot, it's exciting to have a soccer league that reflects the same. That's from Hal. By the way, Hal also sent another email recently saying that he works for the Iowa Democratic Party. So I'm sure he says you can imagine how rough the last month has been since the caucuses, but a new set-piece menu every week is made by Time on the Road much more bearable. If you follow American politics, you will know his pain. By the way, we're recording this pod on Super Tuesday which for non-Americans has nothing to do with any Sky Sports coverage of a midweek Premier League game. I'm surprised Hal has found the time to listen. That's very uh, decent of you, Hal. The, the, the geographic thing is certainly a really fascinating aspect of comparison, isn't it? Because you simply you cannot compare MLS to Serie A or the Bundesliga or the Premier League on the sheer basis of the distances teams and supporters have to travel and what their influences are going to be. It is chalk and cheese, isn't it? You know, the Premier League, we're used to having that culture of travelling to away games, there being 3,000 or so away fans at every Premier League match because, let's be honest, they're relatively easy to get to. How often do you have to travel more than 200 miles to to get to an away game? Whereas, more often than not, in MLS, you're talking about thousands of miles. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we shouldn't shouldn't downplay how inconvenient and annoying it, it can be for Newcastle fans say to have to go to Brighton on a Monday night that is that's deeply unfair especially no, of course. given the frankly remarkable state of public transport in this country but compared to yeah flying flying across the US for several hours in terms of cost and inconvenience and all that stuff it's, it doesn't it doesn't compare and it's why you you actually I think have to sometimes 
forgive, say, Italian fans a little bit for there not being quite the culture of travelling to away or Spanish fans. Yeah, same for Spain. Yeah. Travelling to away games because it's much harder. It's a, they're bigger countries, they're bigger distances. That for a long time there wasn't the infrastructure to do it. My dad, who's a train enthusiast, always says that football in this country is basically a product of the train network. That's what that's what enables football to happen is the development of the train network in the in the late nineteenth century. And if that didn't happen, I'm not an expert on Spanish or Italian train travel. But if, if it was harder for fans to travel in the early days, then that culture doesn't start. It's why in Germany it's protected that that fans get free after the I was at, I went to Dortmund PSG a few weeks ago and I was I was panicking about getting a train back to Essen where my hotel was. Uh and getting a ticket at Dortmund Station, and the Deutsche Bahn have changed all their machines, and it's really, if there's anyone from Deutsche Bahn listening, <laughs> please change your machines back. They are completely incomprehensible. Um, anyway, it's like one o'clock, it's one in the morning, you're knackered, I've spent all night with Miguel Delaney. I'm That's very tiring just, in itself. <laughs> I've had enough. And the, um, Did and he then, have time to talk to you between arguing with Manchester City fans? He is, and now Liverpool fans. And, <laughs> just everybody. Yeah. The... Um, the but you get you get onto the train and the two fellows who were quite drunk in front of me just wave their tickets. No, they sorry, they wave their match tickets because that gets you free train travel in Germany and that's protected because they have that culture. We shouldn't judge other countries for not having that culture because those the the stimuli for that culture are are not what you think they are. And it's worth saying that in in other American sports, often because the franchises have a greater legacy over the course of time and also because of of their success, they will often have away fans at that ground, at the the, the home team stadium, because uh, the city in which that home team plays has... Because of the diaspora, yeah, the or transplants, because yeah. of the the fact that yeah, people move around a little bit more, uh, they will have fans in that city, so they will have a greater representation of away fans, and they all intermingle. And that was the point that David made: that the atmosphere is enhanced by the fact that everybody um, is able to intermingle, and there is no complete fury throughout, and everybody is not angry yeah. all the time. And you don't get people turning. And it's one of the the things that we accept. In European football, that I, I actually, when you think about it, is is really weird. Is that when your team scores a goal, there's always a portion of the crowd that turns to the away fans, that's taking more pleasure in their in their oh, own yeah. happiness yeah. than than and, in and, the fact that you're supporting. Unless you only need, need to turn to the person next to you. People who choose to buy a seat as close to the away section as, as possible, possible, so, so they, they can, can do. Yeah. Well, it's about, go, it's about so they can goad them. They're spending Saturdays a goading. Yes. Where are you going? I'm just going for a good goad. We should say that this uh, this year MLS has 26 teams because of Nashville and Inter Miami being added. It'll be 30 teams in 2022. So there is a fairly aggressive expansion at the but moment. The, the, the problem, I think, with the expansion is that I'm not sure the structure of the league is keeping up with it. Right, that so JD my... on Twitter says, the league feels bloated as of late. Too many teams. The byproduct is that there is often one recognisable player playing with entire rosters filled with unknown and inconsequential players. Hence, MLS has very little national appeal. For a Canadian fan, for instance, a Cincinnati v. Dallas match is not a TV product uh, I would watch. So yeah. there is an issue with expansion, even though the whole point of expansion is something that we just mentioned about taking MLS into communities that have been either underserved by other American sports yeah. franchises or by soccer, where they culturally will identify with soccer more. If you take Miami as an, in, in, uh, as an example, the fact that they are called Club de Football Internacional de Miami tells you exactly all you need to know about the cultural aspect of South Florida that they're trying to tap into. The other thing about the expansion is that it now means, I think this is the first time this season, that teams won't all play against each other during the course of of the campaign. And 
I find that extraordinary. I know it happens in, in the NFL that the that, that teams don't play everybody else and, and you can still win that competition. But it does seem extraordinary to me that you could be presented with the, sh- the supporters' shield for finishing top of the league in the regular season, yet there will be three teams that you've not played at yeah. all. And it's also, it crawls into question the integrity of it. Exactly. Yeah. But you could play them in the playoffs. Yeah, but it doesn't, but for the, supporters, in the, for the supporters' shield, it does suggest, I mean, that, that is a slightly... Maybe this is a cultural but it, thing. But That's it's why the supporter weird. shield doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't have so that So once again, you are devaluing to, to an extent that thing of being the best of the 26 teams during the course of a, a 30-odd game season. That just seems extraordinary. Well, it's also the fact that set, what, seven teams from each conference get in the playoffs, which I think is, is too low. I mean, we, we shouldn't talk about pro-rel because talking about pro-rel in the context of, of American soccer is worse than talking about than doing a podcast on who's better, Ronaldo or Messi. There is just no point doing it. Or writing a piece about Neymar. Or writing a piece about <laughs> Neymar, but in which you are not universally positive. The, um, I think if we, we establish that MLS has no appetite to introduce a, rele- a relegation model. We just, there's, no, there's almost no point debating it. They're just not going to do it. So why bother wasting everyone's breath? There, to, there is a second teams, tier at the moment, but obviously yeah, there is no way of getting them between the two. Yeah. Yes. The, I think in terms of the, the playoff structure, to have that many teams getting through is too low a bar. You, you need to have, within that model, even without relegation, I think you can probably insert some sort of jeopardy and some sense of failure. And to have seven teams from each, from each conference getting through is a bit... But, what, but it's seven, seven from 13? Yeah. That's I, not, that is not extraordinary. If you, if you use the, the NHL and NBA as examples, generally the top half is, is 50... 50, yeah, 50, 50, 50 probably, yeah. Go through, and if they're moving they? towards that, they're going to probably have a 14-team playoff system out of 32, whereas they have 12 at the moment. I would like to see that that become fewer. But it, it, it's, not out, of, it, but but it's it, not out of keeping with other, no, yes, other know, US yeah, sport, yeah. which and is of course, what they're competing against. Yes, you will reduce the amount of well, games that matter. What they want to do for television rights and everything yeah. associated with it, eyeballs and everything, is to increase the amount of games that appear to matter to an American audience who are used to playoff systems yeah. and to games that matter towards it, the end of the season. Except that, and this is what I'm mentioning pointing before, his finger at I'm me. pointing my finger. Except that you, I think, me. I wonder whether within the soccer public... So, yeah, if you're dealing with, like, neophytes who are coming to, to soccer either to their kids or they've only just sort of, they've only just noticed it or whatever, which, of which there will still be a sizable constituency and we shouldn't dismiss their concerns, then you need that familiar model where they think, right, I know what this looks like. In the same way as a 38-game 38 38 round-robin lead season makes complete intuitive sense to us because that's what we grew up with. In America, that's different. They, you know, baseball and basketball and and the NFL all follow a certain pattern. They need that to be familiar. But I think the soccer kind of um, fluent public, that, that section of the support, understands instinctively the European model as well now because they are so exposed to it. And that, that is the background change that MLS has to kind of come to terms with almost is, is how do we marry those two audiences up? Because there will be people in the States who would... There are lots of people who would introduce relegation. And I think there's probably a, a decent size of people, a decent core of people, who might say, well, actually, why don't we just have a... F- let's just do a lead. Would, would there not be a benefit to that, that casual audience or MLS thinking about getting people into the sport? The, the playoff system is a gateway, basically. It's those who, yeah. are, who are interested in the game, as in soccer, and are kind of passingly interested in the fact that there is a league going on in the States, they will n- recognise the names of some of the players and they will recognise the names of some of the teams and they will now <laughs> recognise the names of a lot of owners as well. But there is surely a situation, I probably count myself in this group of people, where 
my interest level is enough to want to watch the playoffs because I know that there's something riding on it. And that me, me as a casual fan, that is the kind of entry point. And then I will learn more about the teams, the players, the owners, the fans for me to then identify maybe with a, with a team and then make that my, my team. And so therefore the relationship can grow. If you have just a league system where those games yeah. aren't necessarily easy to pick out and marketable, because again, we're working in American uh, yeah. sports uh, you said firmament earlier, so I'm going to steal that word. Sorry. Um, that, that surely is crucial to MLS, isn't it? To be yeah. able to get those casual fans in and then they develop their relationship thereafter. But, but it is already the third best attended sport in the US. Only the NFL and Major League Baseball has, has higher average attendances on, that, that, per, per partly game. Partly because of arena size, obviously. Yes, of course, that helps. But, and, and it is bloated by those, those teams that have Atlanta, for example, that get 54,000 yeah. for every home game. Then it is bloated by those teams that do have a, a large and dedicated following. But then if you look at it from a global point of view, it is the seventh best attended mm. soccer league in the world. So it shows you that in terms of interest, in terms of public interest, it's right up there. It's in the mix on a global scale. And so it's it perhaps it should feel strong enough now in its own identity to be able to consider what is better for the fans, what's best for the sport rather than how it fits in the in the climate of US sport because yeah. it's already clearly well high up in people's thinking well you wonder whether and i certainly think this is the case in europe that there is a we're so used to having the conversation when will when will soccer be finally be accepted in the states that we've kind of missed the fact that it has been and we all need to stop talking about that but it's just there and it, it might it will never i guess outstrip the nfl in terms of attendance or or broadcasting deals because the nfl is a kind of one-off sporting phenomenon that even the premier league can't really cope with um so if if that's your bar, then yeah, it's going to fail. But in terms of by every other metric, it's it's arrived. Just just deal with it. It's there. The um the one thing that you wonder is could you not yeah is, as Steve says to be confident enough to tweak the the system. So if you've got thirty teams in twenty twenty two, why not have a sixteen team top flight and a fourteen team second division with promotion? That and I, uh, I don't want to get into kind of joining up the other, all of the other leads and coming up with a proper pyramid, but that would give you the the fourteen weaker teams. Would would kind of have something to play for, so they could get promoted. And you, could, you could, if you wanted to have a playoff system, you could. And the sixteen team top league maybe could go into a playoff system at the end, so you have a kind of. As they, they split the lead in Scotland, I think they split the, split the lead in Belgium. They split the lead in Switzerland. I think. It's as a, as a footnote to all of this. It's interesting that the Champions League itself might actually adopt more of an American model within the relatively near future, because there will be these longer conferences. And then lots of teams go through to, the, to effectively the playoff stage. That that will be how the Champions League looks from 2024 or so. But I don't see why you couldn't maybe change the structure a little bit to concentrate the quality. Because as, as as the email said, one of the problems is that you do have teams where there are one or two really strong players and then a bit of roster stuffing. Maybe concentrate the quality. Maybe try and build that sense of dynasty and crucially that core American identity of this is what. American soccer looks like this is what you can expect from these teams. So maybe down the line you do get Seattle as the long ball team playing against the sort of tiki taka maestros of Inter Miami or Nashville or whatever, rather than what feels like a very much a kind of this is my biggest issue with it relatively bland, identityless style of play 
where all of the teams are a little bit interchangeable. And one of the things that uh, the, we spoke about, the fact that getting an identity is tough because they haven't had the, enough time to be able to do it and there isn't enough variety perhaps, but the, the, one of the ways that they do get identity, the M MLS franchises, are their fans. So you mentioned yeah. Seattle Sounders. They are famous for their fans. As, and Portland, and, yeah. And, and most, yes, Portland as well. Um, and... Steve, you mentioned Atlanta getting all those fans into the Mercedes-Benz Arena, which is frankly, I would go there to, to watch nothing. It's so glorious. But the, and, and, you and get your identity the, through your following yeah. rather than through, through the players and, the, and how you play. Yeah, but, the uh, arena experience must help there, meaning for, for lots yeah, of people. The, yeah. the venue, you know, Atlanta do have that advantage of being able to use the same sta stadium as the Falcons and that must make for a, a great match day experience. And normally that wouldn't be a good thing for a franchise to follow because the smaller soccer-specific central downtown stadia attending to work now yeah, i think so, in the yeah. early 2000s they were they were building all sorts of suburban stadiums yeah. which weren't working so they now have at least reversed that and i think one of the uh, preconditions of starting a franchise is that you have a location downtown yeah. and not um, in the suburbs to be able to tap into the kind of demographic that would watch a soccer game but also potentially would be interested in soccer prior to that because yeah. they have come from parts of Central or South America. And create an... Does it, it, America does have a, a, an amazing opportunity partly because of the the kind of demographic trends where you do have that natural connection to to Central and South America. I think that, that one of the things that's been most positive the last few years is the fact that they're now recruiting much more from South America. There is no reason why MLS can't be the destination of choice for 20-year-old for Argentinians who want to build their career and take that step towards Europe. But the, the one thing we maybe don't have time to touch on, but that is really important, is youth development. And the fact that the, the model in the States that worked in all those other sports will not and cannot work in football. And they, that they are starting to realise that there are now academies starting to, prop up, to pop up that are club-specific. But if you want a club to have an identity in terms of how it plays, then you need that to run throughout the club. You can't be choosing players from college. And, and building that identity will help <coughs> the league in terms of its standing rather than trying to draw comparisons because we see it plenty in European football. Let's pick Angel Di Maria as, as an example. Didn't work out for him at Manchester United. He's clearly a hugely talented footballer who does amazing things for PSG. He's not a bad footballer because it didn't work for him in England. And likewise, rather than saying, well, only players of a certain level can play in MLS and trying to find what level of a European yeah. league structure that meets, actually, it might be, it'd be useful for, as it is for all leagues, to establish the type of footballer that fits into yes. their structure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, David Beckham said it's one of his priorities to try and get an academy up and running and fill his roster with yeah. academy products, or at least partially. There is, of course, the designated player system uh, in the States, which means you can always have people outside of the salary cap that allows you to attract non-academy mm -hmm. products. Um, you mentioned recruitment. We're going to come to that to finish, Rory, but quickly I wanted to bring in a couple of other correspondents so that we were able to reflect their views. Uh, here is Michael Boone. Greetings, gents. I am a later doctor of the pod, but I love it unconditionally. Good. He's learnt no rules. I've even subscribed to Rory's newsletter. That should be the first thing you do. I know. It seems strange that he's ordered it in that way. Uh, at the outset, it must be restated that MLS is completely bonkers and that the early part of the season often bears no resemblance to the final results, something we've spoken about. For example, he says, seen last season when LAFC and Bob, don't call me Voldemort, or ask me about Swansea, Bradley swept all before them only to be undone by mild-mannered Brian Schmetzer and Seattle Sounders. One of the emerging trends, and this is the point that I'd like to bring up in the league, is that the most invested clubs, Seattle, Toronto, NYCFC, LAFC, LA Galaxy, Atlanta, presumably Miami to come, are leaving the so-called legacy clubs that date to the league's founding, Chicago, Dallas, New England and DC, behind and even creating space between themselves and the middle class 
The standard of play is constantly improving, not just with the biggest name players coming from Europe, but across the board. The media coverage is always improving as well. And this incredible video, a mashup of the new Hans Zimmer MLS anthem and some dancing cyber goths exists. And he has sent a link to this. If you haven't heard the Hans Zimmer uh, anthem yet, um, listen to it. But also, we'll put it on Twitter, this video, which is just, frankly, hilarious. And it's worth checking out at Seppi's Menu uh, to watch that. Uh, there was also a very nice thread from Andrew Detmer, who says, it seems to me that the league's biggest issues come from a lack of agreement between the various types of owners. Some like Atlanta United and LAFC want to push the league forward and are really connecting with a wide variety of the potential population who follow soccer in the United States. Others like New England and Dallas seem to not care about growing, expanding, pushing the league forward. So a similar point uh, there from Andrew. who had a long thread, but that was just part of it. Hans-Martin Ishta, who you remember um, is a York City fan and has accompanied this oh, email yeah, course, with the yeah details for you marked for your attention Rory about why that was and he says MLS's weird obsession with legitimizing club names by using European naming conventions and pushing them away from their American identity see sporting Kansas City Real Salt Lake into Miami and changing Chicago Fire Soccer Club to Chicago Fire Football Club I think as long as MLS teams do this they're working against themselves by denying their inherent Americanness and playing into European views that it's just a small league with dreams of emulating Europe. Uh, see Inter Milan's lawsuit against Inter Miami, which um, at the moment is likely to be resolved at the end of the year, and it may well lead to a name change because Inter don't like Inter Miami using their name, even though they uh, generate from two different languages. I, upon, I unapologetically call the sport soccer because I'm American and grew up calling it that. If I'm speaking French or maybe speaking with a Brit, I'll probably call it football, but I feel no attachment to using that word in the American context. It's in the name of the league, for God's sake. Why do we have to edit soccer out of every club name? So there seems to be this conflict between the old, the new, which we're getting in European football as well, the old and the new, and perhaps the... Because that there is an ownership structure and they will centralise and clearly they all have to make decisions together um, that, that is actually providing a little bit of a difficulty at the moment with the expansion in particular. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's probably natural and inherent when you have that model. I think the, there's also a, a clash between the old and the new in terms of the fan bases. It's really interesting that, that Hans Martin thinks it, it needs to be more inherently American. I think we can all agree that what you definitely don't need are the stupid names that they gave the teams initially. That's not the Kansas City whiz etc. That's not ideal. I don't see why you can't... It sounds really stupid, but I don't see why you can't just call it like Kansas City Football Club yeah. or Soccer Club. It, it doesn't need to be anything. Like Nashville is Nashville SC, SC which yeah. I presume is soccer rather than sport, sports club. But that that's fine. You don't need... There's not... That's an, helped by the fact that Nashville doesn't have... They've got the Predators, haven't they? In That's ice hockey in the hockey. Predators, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think that's the only competing but major franchise but there, there because is, the ten Tennessee Titans play in Nashville, but are called Tennessee. But there is no other soccer team in most of these places. So you don't need to distinguish yourself from the other team that might have Kansas City in its name. So just don't be too clever. I think I agree with him that Real Salt Lake gives this impression that you are playing at being European, and I think that's, that's less than ideal. You're exclusively drawing from the, the Latino community, but, for example. But I think... I think that the Salt Lake doesn't have a lot of, I don't think. The, the, the point that, that MLS needs to kind of embrace its Americanness rather than trying to ape the European leads is a really good one, and that's probably where the, the future lies for it. Did they consider the Salt Lake Mormons? I think, well, I don't think everyone in Salt Lake is a Mormon. It would be slightly restrictive if drawing from a large pool. I don't. I think the. I think taking the inspiration from European club names is is over thought. 
I think it's quite a good idea. It's because you are comparing European football <laughs> with American football, and and it is giving it some kind some of conne- so, connection, so, yeah. a connection. Why not? I don't I don't see why why that is a problem because effectively what you're doing is those who have a some kind of sense of European soccer, some kind of connection to it, see that being reflected in what they're getting locally, mm. and surely those who are only interested in it from a local point of view aren't going to be too offended by it. Yeah. I, I imagine the, the, the better ones are the ones that seem to have some sort of through line from their etymology. So if you've got Inter Miami, even though Inter Milan don't like it, it makes sense because it's international. Sporting Kansas City, I'm not entirely sure there's a connection between don't Kansas City no. and Lisbon. Just, just as an example. The Inter thing is stupid because, it, I mean, there is a team in Brazil called Internacional. There are lots. So there's an Inter Leipzig, I think, in Germany. So like, what the hell? I mean, I know it only applies to the States, but I, I cannot believe Inter Milan, Inter Milan are pursuing it. I find it extraordinary. Uh, they have been successful to at least get this far, yeah. I think, haven't they? So uh, we're going to finish with recruitment. Our apologies in advance for the fact that this will be one of the longer pods. We hope that you have uh, found it entertaining to spend your time with us. Alan Shepard, not the astronaut, tweeted us a thread of four messages, which Defin- is def- a... Definitely not the definitely astronaut. Definitely not the astronaut. It's definitely not. Uh, it is a grand total of one-sixth of all of his tweets ever. So we are honoured. 24 messages he's ever posted and four of them came in this thread and I'm only going to steal one of them as well. Uh, One of the points he makes is about recruitment. The increased focus on Latin American scouting is excellent, increasing the quality of the league. It also makes it more distinctive in terms of play, though perhaps less attractive to the casual fan than recruiting global megastars like Pirlo or Zlatan at the end of their careers. So ever since David Beckham in 2007, there have been examples prior to that, but particularly because David Beckham, because the designated player rule is now called the Beckham rule Mm -hmm. uh, because of him signing for LA Galaxy. You can have three designated players outside the salary cap and they are essentially your brand champions. Those are the ones to sell your franchise to the rest of the States and indeed globally. And the decisions you make uh, therein are incredibly important. And they are also usually your best players, so they will help your team further themselves, case in point, Zlatan and Pirlo, as just mentioned uh, by Alan Shepard, not the astronaut. So do you try and fill your roster with young, good players, but still then get the designated players to try and sell your brand? Or is it important actually to eventually phase out this idea that you are relying on those slightly older past it, in inverted commas, players who are looking for a payday? Yeah, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too holy than them about that, should we? I mean, Zlatan's playing for Milan. Like, it's not like European clubs are, are immune to thinking he's good and old and available, let's sign him. So I think there's always a place for, for showpiece signings like that. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. But I definitely think that, that for the future, that in terms of on the pitch, MLS's future is going to Argentina, Uruguay, Colombia, this, Brazil to an extent... Those, the, Mexico, that, definitely. Well, it's the lead, lead, so the main target for MLS at the moment should be to become a more popular lead than Leader MX within, right. the, within the US. So Leader lead, MX is really well paid. It's a very high standard and the team's really good and historic. So it's, it's the fact that Inter Miami have signed Rodolfo Pizarro from Monterey is a, is a fairly big coup because Monterey are champions of, of, Con, of CONCACAF and are the are, are kind of a massive historical club. So that Mexico is, is something to be aimed for, but I think to do that, if I was running a an MLS franchise, I would be saying, right, there is no reason at all that we shouldn't have scouts all over South America, and we should be trying to beat the European clubs, maybe not to the absolute superstars, but to the people like Pity Martinez and Joseph Martinez, who 
who are maybe the European clubs are going, mm, I don't know, I don't know. We can go and get them and we can Miguel give them Almeron, a chance. Miguel Almiron, who's a perfect that. example that and he then, is the player that demonstrates there's that pathway. And then you try and sell them on to Europe. And then the more, the more Almirons you get, or Christian Pavon's at LA Galaxy now with, with one of the Barrister Lottos as his coach, I can't remember which one. Um, if Pavon does well at Galaxy, he might well get a move to Bordeaux. And then if he does well, then more Argentinians will start to think, well, actually, do you know what? I can go to MLS as my next step. My next step. It, it is that that bridge league. They're going to be to the Europe. Stoke of world football. <laughs> that's not a bad. But that's that's not a bad thing because if you're it, there, isn't that pathway out of out of Liga MX because it's hard to sign players from really hard to sign players from Mexico. So if you can become an attractive prospect for South Amer- young South American and Central, Central American players who can go and build their careers there for two or three years and then go to Europe. You will not only build their careers, you will build your club's reputation and your Leeds' reputation. That has to be the, the focus. I, I really think that is one area, though, where MLS is still very much stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of those marquee signings because it gives them credibility. It raises brand awareness instantaneously rather yeah. than that, that taking the, the longer-term view or the, 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 the longer shot of trying to develop a player but it also ties in more with the way you know we've talked about comparisons with other US sports you know you still see that it's one of the big differences between US sports and European sports yes we've got Messi and Ronaldo who are players that can make a difference to any team but that is much more a thing in US sport the individual's ability to completely transform a side that's why you know the, the draft you know being able to get that first pick in the draft is so important because you can take a team that has tanked one season and turn it into a, a competitor the, the next season on. And even in a game which I, you know, sport I follow closely, NHL, you know, it astonishes me how, you know, the players are running off the ice the whole time. But having that one standout top quality player at Vetchkin, at Washington, at Sidney Crosby, at Pittsburgh, McDavid, at Edmonton, can. can can transform a team that would otherwise just be very, very mid-ranking into one that is exceptional. And I suppose that there's a cultural thing that is going to take time for MLS to shake off. Outside of the designated player system, uh, building your roster is uh, notoriously complicated in MLS. And a lot of people have tweeted and emailed to that effect. At RJP11 on Twitter sent us a flowchart-like thing from Sports Illustrated from a couple of years ago, which is a guide to recruiting players for an MLS roster, saying alongside it, who can understand this? Uh, We will tweet it and you, amongst friends, can play it to see if you, either a franchise or indeed a player, can be signed by an MLS franchise. I would recommend having, we've, worked, we've been through it, it's ridiculous. I would recommend maybe get, gathering a group of five or six friends, acquaintances, work colleagues together and playing it instead of a board game. You each take on, an, there's, there's actually, they could, there's maybe a merchandising line in that. Can you, can you play an MLS? And you, you kind of, yeah, get a group of people together and each one gets assigned a role as either like a Dutch midfielder or a Portuguese manager or a club. And you have to see if you're allowed to, to be an MLS. It's, it's quite fun. Or next time you get sucked in towards a conversation about VAR in the pub, yeah. just pull out this flowchart because it's much less boring. We have been going for long enough in this episode for you to understand that Stephen has already started lunch. So that is a, that is a sign we that we've been going for long enough. We thank you for all your contributions on MLS. Um, but now it is time, even though he is not here, for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy Hitchcliffe tells the tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. So, remarkably and rather magically, Andy Hitchcliffe, it's over to you. This is a story that was prompted by... Um a programme on the radio station, Radio 4. I presume most of our... fourth best radio It is. Most of our listeners will will know what Radio 4 is and what Desert Island Discs is. It's where Lauren Laverne uh, gets celebrities in and talks to them 
and occasionally makes them cry about their lives and picks music. And Ian Wright, who was my teammate, my England... Have I told you I played for England? And Ian Wright was part of the... Of the squad as well. Now, Rory isn't here. He would yeah. say he is his BBC colleague, yes. Ian Wright. Righty. Um, but uh, Rory, obviously, does not trump your international football career. Absolutely. And Ian Wright was telling the story of um, a school teacher who was his inspiration or, or who believed in him more than anybody else when he was a kid and, and kind of led him on the path to footballing greatness. Uh, Mr. Pigeon was this guy's name. And there's a, a really sweet video on, you probably see it on YouTube, when I think Ian Wright's doing something for some TV programme and he's back in the director's box at Arsenal. And he thinks, he's been told that Mr. Pigeon is dead. He thinks he's a dead pigeon. But he isn't. <laughs> is this a Monty Python? No, 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 no. And he, he turns up and Ian Wright, it's, you've got to watch it, it. Anybody out there, go on YouTube, see this. Put in Ian Wright, teacher, and it comes up and his, his surprise and his delight that his school teacher that meant so much to him is alive and he, he bursts into tears on that video and he also bursts into tears on Desert Island Disc telling the story about Mr Pigeon and what he meant to him. So I thought, went back to my grammar school days, grammar school boy, well educated as you can probably tell, and there was a, a maths teacher who was inspirational to me but not in maths, in sport. Clearly he was teaching the wrong subject. Uh, Mr Wood. Now, what Mr. Wood wanted to do, it was, at the, it was our last year of senior school, and we all you know, have these huge assemblies that you have, and there's hundreds and hundreds of kids there, and they wanted to kind of talk about what the future might hold for, for certain people. So he got, there was about four or five of us. I was obviously going to go on to be a sporting legend, so he, he wanted to talk about that. There's people like in engineering or in the arts or, or this type of stuff. So he picked out kind of four or five people and said, during the course of the assembly, I'm going to talk about future, and what I want to do is is I'll, I'll kind of, as if it's by randomly, I'll single somebody out and say, you boy, Hargreaves, that, that's not me, that's Hargreaves, stand up and he'll say, what do you want to be when you grow up and blah, 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 and everyone will be amazed and everything else. So it, I was not the type of person who wanted to be front and centre on a football pitch, lacrosse pitch, rugby pitch, I was front and centre because of my no, incredible left, ability. Left and back, left and back. No, 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 and I was, I was rugby, I was standing off. Um, <laughs> But I didn't really, in, in, in kind of classrooms or in group gatherings, I didn't really, I, I, I didn't want to do any of that. Things have changed since then, obviously. Uh, so he said to me, yeah, I'm going to talk about sport. And obviously the school was big for cricket, lacrosse, rugby. And I was, I was clearly the best of, that the school has ever seen. And he, he said, can I, I'm going to call on you Hinchcliffe. Because he didn't call me Andy, he just called me Hinchcliffe. That's what they do at grammar schools. And he said, I want you to stand up and I'm going to ask you a few questions about sport and everything else and, and like that. so I thought oh god do I really have to do this and he said yes because you're that good at sport now and clearly will be a probably an England international you may get somewhere around the eight cap mark <laughs> I I feel we have to use you you're such an underachiever yeah uh, yeah he was really disappointed when I got to seven and then just tailed off um, <laughs> he went to his grave let down <laughs> so yeah so we do honestly it was it was absolutely horrendous so Obviously, the, the five of us are kind of spread around the assembly, and there are literally hundreds of kids there. So Mr. Wood introduced himself, and he said, what did and he talks about engineering, whatever it is, you know, the boring things that no one wants to do. Um, and then he says, um, right, sport plays a big part in this, this, this school curriculum. Who can I... Hinchcliffe! So I have to stand up. Thankfully, I'm wearing long trousers. And he starts talking about my sporting achievements, which were many and great. Uh, and then he said, what do you want to be? When, when I'll grow up is probably the wrong term, but I think he probably did say, when you mature into a full-grown man. Uh, I said, well, I want to be a professional footballer. 
and the assembly completely cracked up. <laughs> everybody, everybody, even the head teacher and the dinner ladies laughing, laughing at me, dinner thinking, yeah, the they'd all come in, they'd all come in to hear it, and I was, I've never been as embarrassed, but you know what? I thought, you know what, I'll show them. Mr. Wood had faith in me. He was the one, the thousand kids and dinner ladies and head teachers, they can go screw themselves. So what did I do? I set my mind to the challenge. I'm going to show you lot that I am going to be a professional footballer. I am going to play just under eight times for England. <laughs> and boy, did I achieve that. But thank you, Mr. Wood, because again, he was a maths teacher and I wasn't, I was reasonable at maths. I think I got a B, um, which is just below an A. And, but it was sport. And he clearly, well, Mr. Seddon, my sports teacher, he didn't seem to have a lot of faith in me. Why, why wasn't he standing up saying how great I'd be? But it was Mr. Wood. So thank you, Mr. Wood, for having faith in me. But that assembly was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever had to do in my life. But boy, did I show the rest of William Hume Grammar School for the advancement of young gentlemen <laughs> what I was going to do. So Steve said that Mr. Wood had gone to his grave disappointed. Well, as it turns out, he's still alive and... If you look down those stairs now, Mr. Wood. <laughs> Mr. Where is he? Have you? Wouldn't that be great? Can we get? Can we find out? Is Mr. Wood alive? If he is, let's get in touch and let's. I want to give him a big pat on the back. What was his first name? Can you remember? Mister. <laughs> I was. Mister. Mister Wood. Fifteen years old. You don't call teach. I didn't actually. I, no, it was Mr. Se Actually, Chris Seddon was the, was the school games teacher. But games teachers are a bit cooler, aren't they? But Mr. Gracie, my Latin teacher, matron patriarch in cubiculum, he was tough. I, didn't, I don't think he had a first name. It was just Gracie, because he was hard. He was hard as nails. And it was, yeah, Mr. Wood. Mr. Wood of William Hume Grammar School, mm -hmm. uh, circa 1985. Uh Yes, yes, because 69, 84, 84, early eight, no, early 80s, probably 83, 84. Get in touch. Yeah. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Are you mm. that Mr. Wood? Or relatives of Mr. Wood if he is in fact dead. Yes, if you're not that Mr. Wood, it may well be that you know of him. And don't, Mr., all the Mr. Woods out there, don't come forward, it was me, it was me, because you want to claim a bit of me. Don't be doing that. We want the uh, original Mr. Wood, who actually dealt with me at William Hume Grammar School. Don't come out of the woodwork <laughs> looking to attach yourself to my greatness, because it ain't going to work. What I love about that story is everybody went to school with that one kid who was, who was the best in school at football, and you thought, do you know what, they might make it they might turn pro. Yet, nobody at Chinch's school who had been playing football with him, one assumes... Didn't play football. No, it was a grammar school. We didn't play football at school. It was lacrosse, cricket and rugby. I played for City. I played at the weekends. I didn't play football at school. So that's maybe why they found it so hilarious. So you had like an, a secret identity? Not really. They knew I was affiliated to Manchester City Football Club. They knew I was playing football, but they, they probably thought, well, we'll laugh at you being a professional footballer. Clearly, you could be a professional rugby player, professional lacrosse player, international cricketer. But to say you're going to be a footballer was like, no chance. That's fourth on the list of, of how great you're going to be. Because they, were they laughing at you because the idea of playing football was beneath them? Um, all, they, all they really did was laugh at themselves because... It, I grew as a person, quite literally. I grew inches. Uh, with their condemnation, I became a stronger person, and it drove me. It drove me on, 
not everyone can draw nil-nil with Saudi Arabia. And at the end of that game, when I was high-fiving Martin Keown, I thought <laughs> that'll teach all those schoolboys a lesson. And we thank Andy Hinchcliffe for his efforts, his wonderful storytelling so and his incredibly uh, moving uh, recollections of school time. Uh, keep your correspondence coming into setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Thank you for all of them, for particularly today's episode. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I can't believe that you mentioned salami an hour and ten minutes ago and we've still not had any salami. Not only have you had to wait that long for salami... Stephen has already reboiled the I'm kettle. Re- You're yeah. two breadsticks down. Yeah, this, oh, this is my third here. <laughs> so uh, all the things that I've been abstaining from to try and bring you some excellent content, I'm glad that you've totally disregarded and ploughed on with luncheon. Well, I've just uh, glanced at the clock, and it's already 22 minutes after I promised Katie you would have left. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's eat fast. I've got to do work. You have to work. Yeah. I have to edit this thing yeah. to bring it to the masses. Uh, by 6am on Wednesday morning uh, when you'll also know that there are just two people left in the democratic nomination process for the presidential uh, Stop election. dating the content. <laughs>